You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Uh, Two of the best days of my life, I would have to say, it's not that hard to think of. There would be the days that my kids were born, those, you know, a highlight right at the top there. And I remember them uh, pretty distinctly, as you, you know, probably would on a day like that. Nora was born on December 5th, 2012, and uh, it was a December night, but it was it was nice and cozy. She was born in the Jerome Hospital, and it's smaller there, and I think we were the only ones having a baby that night. So it just felt like really cozy. It was snowing outside, very beautiful. I remember the room being warm, and uh, Nora came out, did some damage, and, and they put her on uh, on Adrian, and, and that was the moment. We didn't know she was going to be a girl, and uh, we didn't do an ultrasound, and so overjoyed at that. Like, I didn't know how I would respond to being a dad for the first time, but... Uh, you can't even really rehearse that. That's just what happens. And then John, born uh, November 13th, 2014, on the morning, and it was snowing that day too in the, the Twin Falls Hospital, so it wasn't quite as cozy. Uh, but it was snowing out there. It was the first big snowfall of the season. The roads were all slippery. But John was born that day, and, and uh, that all happened really easily and quickly. Adrian was laughing when it was going on. So we gave him the last name Isaac, or the middle name Isaac, because it means laughter. And... Uh, you know, these are these are like the highlights. Like it's, it's not a, a big thing. That's an obvious one. What's a highlight of your life? The day your kids are born, uh, if you're blessed enough to have kids. And from the day that they were born, again, not a big deal, just like common things they go through, I thought about how, how their life is going to be. Like how, how do I want their life to turn out? What is my, sort of my plan as their dad for their life? What, what am I going to try to protect them from and help them with and hope that their life turns out like and what it might look like if everything went according to plan they're not big plans but you know they're important ones things like if everything went according to plan they would be happy their whole lives Uh, they would be healthy i pray for those two things all the time they'd be happy and healthy and they would know god from a young age and do great things for his kingdom that's that's pretty much the big plans that i want for my kids happy healthy and do great things for god's kingdom and so far, Nora's four, John's two, everything's gone according to plan, which is a blessing. Not everyone can say that, even with kids being so young. They can't always say, my four-year-old has been happy and healthy. But we can say that. We've been very blessed in that way, that our kids have been happy and healthy so far. Uh, they were both sick right before Christmas, like throwing up. And that was a big deal for us because they haven't hardly even been sick, let alone like big-time sickness some kids go through, even at a young age. They've been happy. Like I was thinking about what do they worry about? And I think Nora worries quite a bit if we run out of milk, but she's learning how to cope with that. You know, deal that's kind of the biggest thing on her mind when that happens. So they're they're happy, they're they're healthy, 
And God willing, he gives us the wisdom to, to teach our kids about him so that when he calls them to him, they're ready to respond to his call and do great things for his kingdom. That's, that's my plan for them, what I would like for their lives. And, you know, because I love them, I'm going to do everything I can to protect them from evil and sin and harm. But that being said, like, I know I'm not that powerful. I know that there's going to be a day that comes that I can't say, Everything has gone according to plan in their lives. There's going to be a day that they're hurt, like big time hurt. There's going to be a day that comes when they go through suffering. There's going to be a time that comes, maybe they're, they get sick. There's going to be a time that comes where those plans don't go how I want them to. And we've all had that experience in our lives with our own plans, what we have planned for our own lives. For some, it it didn't take long for those plans to not go according to plan. We all have these plans and expectations, and it doesn't take long before we're hurt. Something happens, and those plans are just a memory. And and that's that's the big big problem we're going to look at tonight. Really, a big human problem is that life doesn't go according to our plans. And I think Job in the Bible is probably one of the best examples we can look at if someone's whose life did not go according to plan, which really we could say of everyone in the Bible, at some point God intervened in their life and changed the course of their life as He did with us if we're Christians. But with Job, it's that suffering aspect of it. We get to see so clearly that Job, his life up to, it's like day X. There's a day in your life when, when it doesn't go according to plan. It, you remember everything before that day? And then everything after that day. And that day is, you know, the, the day of reckoning, so to speak. And Job's life before that day, the Bible says, is he was blessed and upright, the greatest of the men of the East. And he had more money than anyone. He had kids. He had a wife. He had servants. He had a maid. And then what we see in this book of Job is how the lesson is very hard. That Job, or that Satan reports to God, and God asks Satan, where have you been? Satan says, been going to and fro on the earth. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's nobody like him? And Satan accuses Job because that's what he does. And he says that, well, of course, he loves you. You've given him everything. Everything's gone according to plan for him. You take that away. You mess up his plans. He'll curse you to your face. That's what Satan said. God gives Satan permission. Take away everything he has. Just don't touch him. So his kids die, his house is ruined, his servants are dead, all his livestock, everything he's been working for in his life is gone like that. And one day, it's one after another after another. It's described in Job 1 and 2. After that, Job says that the Lord has given and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job did not curse God with wrong. Well, Satan comes back. And God says to Satan, did you see Job, how he didn't do what you said? Satan accuses him again and says, well, yeah, he still has his health. Skin for skin. Take away that. He'll curse you to your face. So God says, okay, Satan, take away his health. His health is gone. He gets boils on his skin. He describes what we read tonight. His skin has turned black even from the the sickness. And that happened. Job's wife says, curse God and die. Job says, no, we can't only accept good from God. We have to also accept suffering. And he still didn't curse God with wrong. And that's his plans, how they were gone like that. And then the rest of the book, 
has been so far what we've read is how his friends have come to try to help him. And at first they're trying to help, but they end up just arguing and, and pointing the finger at, at Job and trying to say, well, this is what God is doing in your life. Trying to tell him, you have a secret sin. You've got to figure out what's wrong, what you've done wrong. You've got to figure out why God did this to you because there's something hidden in your life. And they start arguing. Job doesn't buy their point of view. He knows that that's not the case. And so after about... 25 or so chapters of them arguing in which the friends did nothing to help him. They're done. And we're going to read tonight uh, Job 29, 30, and 31. We'll go through three chapters because it's one speech. It's Job's final speech. His last defense, they usually call it. And after this, he's done talking until God shows up later in the book and, and he repents of what happened. So these three chapters is Job, in his response to what happened when his plans were gone like that. When life didn't go according to his plan and how he responded to that. So what we need to ask going into this as we study these chapters is, well, what about you? And I know we've all been through this. I know we've all had plans that didn't go according to plan. And how do we respond? And I know that it's going to happen again. It's happened before it's going to happen again. I mean, no one goes into a marriage planning for it to get divorced. No one plans to hear a phone call in the night there's been an accident. No one plans to hear the diagnosis, cancer. No one plans to become addicted to drugs and alcohol. No one plans these things, but they happen in our lives. What do we do when those plans don't go according to plan? So let's go to Job, starting at chapter 29. He gives a, this speech here, again, very heartfelt, emotional speech, one of the, the most emotional in the Bible, I would say, at least for is an, an extended speech. And chapter 29 is all about Job's better times. Like I said, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this, there's, there's that day. And that day you probably remember very clearly, and kind of everything before that is one part of your life, and everything after that is another part of your life. And that day is the day when Whatever happened, happened. And so Job starts with the better times, the, the times before that day. Let's look at what he says. First, he says how God used to be working in his life. He used to be able to see God, but he can't anymore. In verses 1 through 6, Job 29. It says, Job further continued in his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. See, these are the days he used to remember when, when he could see God working in his life. I mean, Oh, that I were as in months past in the days when God watched over me. Probably doesn't feel that way anymore that God is watching over him. When his lamp shone on his head, when he walked through the darkness by God's light, when the Almighty was with him, when his children were around him, longing for those days. It's an obvious thing to be longing for, but I, I think one of the things here that we can sometimes forget is how awesome it is that Job can say this. Because some people, when they go through the trial, 
that the, the plans didn't go, they can't say, man, there was a time when God was really watching out for me. There was a time when, when his light was over me. Some people have no hope. They have no none of that recollection of God being there with them. I'm not saying God has abandoned him now. That's what he feels like. But, but he's able to say this because he's been living a godly life to this point. But I want to compare this with someone in a similar situation from Psalm 77. Listen to what it says in Psalm 77. It just took a few verses out of there. It says, I cried out to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? And I said, This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. This this situation is obviously very similar. Suffering. Stretched out at night without ceasing, my soul cannot be comforted. But you see the difference in, in the tone, in the way they see it, where Job only looks at the past and says, man, I wish it was still like that. Whereas the psalmist in Psalm 77, yes, looks at the past and I'm suffering, but says, I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work. There's a difference in the way they're approaching that. So he used to remember God in his life. Then he continues to remember these better times how he used to have it all. He had, he had everything, all of his plans. Verse 7. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. And this is... Where Job's life used to be. And it's easy to see why it says at the beginning that Job was an upright and blameless man before God. Look at what, what he did. Look at his life. When he took a seat in the square, young men hid from him out of respect. The aged rose up to respect him. Princes wouldn't even talk in his presence because of the respect they had for him. He de- because, and here's what he did, I delivered the poor who cried out. The fatherless and the one who had no helper. He was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. And look what he did. Look at how he lived a godly and upright life. And, and his friends saying, well, Job, you must have deserved this. You must have done something wrong for God to do this to you. I, I don't buy it. God doesn't buy it. And that's not the case. Because look what, he, that was his life. So he used to have it all. And he had it made. Like he had his life all planned out. And that's the rest of the chapter here. Then I said, I shall die in my nest. And multiply my days as the sand. 
My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. The glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Men listened to me and waited, and kept silence for my counsel. After my words they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it, and the light of my countenance they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. He had his life all planned out. He was following God. He was doing godly things. And he says, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. I'm just going to keep going along this plan, trying to do the right thing and honoring God with my life. And he even says again how much respect he had. That if, if he mocked someone, they wouldn't even believe it. Like Job couldn't do that. Job would have mocked someone. That's not who he is. He says that he dwelt as a king in the army. So this was his life before that day, before all those plans not coming to plan, when his kids died, his, his house is ruined, his health is taken away. And we see he had a great past. He really had good days. But if we look here closely, I mean, if, if you've been here through Job, I've been pretty harsh with the friends because God is. God says the friends do not speak to me what is right. But Job, I don't want to armchair quarterback Job because he is in a situation I can't even dream of being in. But at the same time, I can look at what God says of Job and how what he's trying to show us in this book. And we know at the end, if you read it, that Job repents at the end that he's done wrong at least in his response to this and we start to see here it's been kind of hidden in the book but in this last speech we start to see what really has been the underlying thing in job and it'll clear up a little bit as we go on today but notice compared to psalm 77 which i read these are all he's talking about great days and he's not thankful for them it's like he's coveting them He's not thankful to God that he had great days and that God was with him still. And even though his plans were ruined, he still has God with him. It's not like that. And I'm not faulting Job. I'm not faulting anyone who's in this situation. And again, I I can't imagine the situation he's in. And I would say he has every right to want things to be the way they were before then, when his children were around him, when the Almighty was still with him. But the caution here is to try to be thankful for the past rather than coveting it. Because here's what happens. And I know in my life, I've been through like not what a lot of people have been through, but I've been through some things. And the, the danger here is yeah, when the past is the thing we look back to. It almost becomes an idol. Like I, I long for that, not in a thankful sense, but I want that back. And that's what coveting is. It's when we want what God doesn't want for us. And the, the danger of there is when that happens, when it's a longing for the past that's not in a thankful sense, but in a, I, I need that back, I deserve that back, well, then you start to tell God you need it. Whenever you hold that to God, something that He never promised, and saying, I need that, and you don't get it, that's when you're right here. When you don't see God in your life anymore, you can't see how He's working because God didn't give me what I needed. And it becomes an, an anger towards him. See, the Bible says that we're to grieve 
differently than those who have no hope. And that's very important. It doesn't say not to grieve. The Bible doesn't say we can't grieve, but we grieve differently than those who have no hope. Because without God in our lives, when, this, when our plans don't go according to plan, where, where do we have to put our hope in? I mean, what's left? To just work out our days, hope it gets better? Hope that uh, whatever false god we worship is going to accept us on the day of judgment? Because that's all any other religion but Christianity offers. To hope that a God we don't believe in when we stand before Him is going to give us a free pass because, well, I don't want to go for that. I mean, that's, that's all the hope there is. But we have hope that Jesus says, I've made a place for you. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. He's reassuring. There's a place reserved in heaven for you. And that's, that's where our hope is. So, yeah, we grieve as Christians. Don't pretend we've got to be the smiley face. Well, you know, it's, it's okay. Everything works out for good. It's grieved, but differently from those who have no hope. And what, what we see, again, I don't want to pick on Job at all because of what he's going through, but again, he repents at the end. And he's starting to grieve like someone who doesn't have hope. And because what we're saying as Christians is what we believe is that God himself paid the penalty for my sin so that I could be in relationship with him and he came to live in me by the power of his spirit. But when things don't go to my plan, it's like I have no hope. Well, what's... God is living in us. We grieve differently than those who have no hope. So th- those are his better days, longing for th- those different times. And then in chapter 30 now, he goes on to talking about how his plans were ruined, how what he had set up for his life is now gone. And, and everything gets, gets flipped around. That's what happens on those days. Everything you thought was going to happen is turned upside down. And where he used to be respected by everyone, now he talks about how the worst people taunt him and mock him and spit at him. In chapter 30, verse 1. But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gone from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them, is that, is that a thief? And they had to live in the clefts of the valleys, in caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. And now... I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me. They have cast off restraint before me. At my right hand the rabble arises. They push away my feet. And they raise against me their ways of destruction. They break out my path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers under the ruinous storm. They roll along. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. If you were young men used to hide out of respect for him. Old men wouldn't even talk out of respect for him. Now, these young men who are sons of disgusting people that he's saying that are criminals, they've been scourged from the land, they've been kicked out, they've been told to leave the land. These people are now spitting at him and mocking him, taunting him. This should sound familiar. 
uh, with a person named Jesus. That God, the Son, dwelt in heaven eternally, worshipped, revered, honored. He left to come live with people like us. People who spit in his face when he did no wrong. People who reviled him and he reviled not. People who shoved a crown of thorns onto his head and that mocked him. Like Job is being mocked. That would slap, they slapped him in the face and said, if you're a prophet, prophesy. Who slapped you? You can save other people. Save yourself and come down from the cross. The difference though is, is these guys mocking Job, they're the, the outcasts of society, the criminals. The ones mocking Jesus were religious people that didn't like how he, he messed up their, their little system. But Jesus did that for our sake, to give us eternal life. So where he used to be respected, now he's mocked and spit on. And where God used to watch him, where God's light used to shine on his head, now God opposes him. Verse 16. And now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you regard me. But you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all the living. See where he said, God's light used to shine on me and I used to walk by the light. Now God has become cruel to him. He sees God as his enemy now. And like I've been saying, we'll see what Job repents of later in the book. And it's this kind of... And I want to be careful, yes, to cry out to God in faith, in anger for what has happened. But he's turned against God now. He, he's, this is Satan's oldest trick, literally, in the book. The first one he did is to convince Eve that God is not good. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that fruit? He only says that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's not really that loving. See, whenever we're at that, that point where God is not good anymore, we're, we've fallen for that same trick. Where, and I've said before, the kind of uh, in a way to illustrate it is, what are you looking at God through or your situations? If your difficulty, the day of trouble is the uh, clouds, is God in front of the clouds where you see the clouds through your God that he is good? Or is God behind the clouds where God is obscured by your problems and you see him now as evil and not good? That he's become cruel to you See, the Bible says that if God didn't spare his son, he's not going to spare us anything that's good. But when we put God behind our problems, then we fall for that trick. Well, God can't really be that good because he's done this to me. And this is, again, part of what Job's problem is, what he repents of. So then the last part he says about how his fortunes have changed here, how his situation, is that how he used to help everyone? Now there's nobody to help him. Verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? But when I looked for good, evil came to me. 
And when I waited for light, then came darkness. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. He was there to help everyone. The cry of the poor, he helped. He was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. And now in his day of distress, when he cries out, when he looks for good, there's no one to help him. Even God himself. And and he sees God as, he says, if a heap of ruins was crying out against God, surely he wouldn't destroy it. Like I'm saying, this is part of the thing that he's starting to reveal, is that he has put his own ideas of God onto who God should be. At the end of the book, what he says after God shows up and, and shows him who he is, he says, what I heard with my ears, now I understand with my eyes. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And so what, what he's getting at is, it's this, he's, he's putting all these ideas onto God and, and he's trying to tell God the way he should operate. That God would, if, if a heap of ruins cried out, God would Stop. Why doesn't God listen to me when I cry out? I've helped people. Why don't people help me when I cry out? This is, even in my own experience as you know, a selfish individual, when, when I help people and serve people, this is my selfish response. When is it my turn to be helped? When is someone going to help me? But a reward is not here. A reward is in heaven. So there's no sign of this coming. He was living a godly, upright lifestyle, helping people, and then it's gone. Now, what we know about Job from God and Satan in chapter 1 and 2, Job has no idea about that. So we have to think from his point of view, what, what is happening here? Remember that God is not punishing Job. He's not trying to teach him a lesson through what happened to him. And really, it's the opposite reason that God was bragging on Job is why all this started. This is a tough teaching. This is why the Bible is real and grimy and gritty and deals with real life, not religious platitudes. And and I'd like to give you pat answers, like some simple things. You know, when your plans don't go according to plan, here's what you should do, and here's what you should think. But life is not that simple, and surely the true God is not that simple, that we can just say, well, here's how it all works out. We study Him and learn Him and grow to trust Him. But we need to wrestle with this idea that all this is happening because God, and in our lives too, either allowed it or caused it to happen. Yeah, I teach high school, and one of the books we read every year is Of Mice and Men. And if you never read it, I'm not going to spoil it because you know, it's a good book. But I'll spoil the poem for you that the title's based on. Okay, it's just a poem. And uh, it's a poem called To a Mouse. And it's, it's about a guy who gets really philosophical about uh, he has a plow and he runs over a mouse's house in his field. And he sees the mouse run away and the mouse is scared of him. And he gets really deep about it and has these deep thoughts. And, and he, he says to the mouse, don't run from me. If you need food, I have plenty of food. You're just a mouse. I'll give you food. Don't be afraid of me. It was just an accident. But then he thinks about what the, happened to that mouse, that the mouse had spent who knows how long building his house, storing up for the winter, and now it's a few weeks before winter, and like that, the house is gone. And he's, he knows the mouse isn't going to make it 
The mouse is going to die. He doesn't have enough time to redo all that work. And he starts feeling really guilty about it. And, but then he thinks even deeper about people. And that's where the, the famous line is, the best laid plans of mice and men go off to stray. And that the best plans we have for our lives go wrong, and they can go wrong like that. We don't even know. It's like some guy kicking our house in. And he thinks, well, the mouse has an advantage to people because all the mouse cares about is right now. But when that happens to us, we think back to the past and we get depressed. And we look to the future and we get anxiety. And that's our curse as people that animals don't have. And that's, that's what happens. I'm not comparing God to a guy who kicks over our house. But it's, it's like that. Right? That's the plans we make for our lives. And, and you know, it's happened to you. It comes like that most of the time. We don't see it coming. But then here's, here's the key thing. It's going to happen. The day of trial will come, the Bible says. But then it's how do we respond? And it's not so simple as the pat answer, but let's look at Job's response in chapter 31. But to preface this part, it's again, Job didn't deserve it. We saw what he did with his life. He was a godly man. God didn't kill his kids to teach him a lesson about some hidden sin in his life. But Job ends up repenting at the end. So there's some issue going on. Like, and now is when we start to see it kind of emerge pretty clearly. And when we read this chapter, I don't think Job is boasting. He says a lot of things about how good he's been. I don't think he's boasting. What he's doing is refuting his friends. This is his final argument. His friends have been saying, Job... God is doing this because you have a secret sin. You've got to fix what's wrong with you. You haven't helped enough people. When people cried out to you, you didn't listen. And he's refuting all their arguments. And he does it in a really good way. Because with everything he says, he says, I haven't done this thing that's wrong. He recognizes why it's wrong, why it's abhorrent to God that people do these things, and why people deserve the judgment that's coming to them. So he has a really deep understanding of God and godly things. People call this chapter the precursor to the Sermon on the Mount because it's very similar to what Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's let's look at this. Here's his response. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? So each one of these things, he says, he doesn't lust. He's made a covenant with his eyes not to look on a young woman. And he, he doesn't lust. And then he says why it's wrong from God's point of view. Not just, you know, it's, it's morally wrong, but from God's standards. He's understanding the heart of God. And then he says why that deserves the judgment with each one of these things. So he doesn't lust. That's his first thing. If, if I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales, that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. So he said, I don't lust. I don't lie. Verse 9, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down over her, for that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for that would be a fire that consumes to destruction, and would root out all my increase. 
He said they don't commit adultery, even though Job is a very rich man, would have socially been able to have many wives, but he says he's faithful to his wife. If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? So he takes care of his servants. Because the same God that made me made them. He takes care of his servants. If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself, so that the fatherless cannot eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he has not warmed, was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence I cannot endure. So he's given generously. Anytime he sees someone in need, I've given it to them. Again, this is refuting what the friend said. Uh, you must have not helped enough people. If I have made gold my hope or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much. If I have observed... Oh, stop there. He doesn't worship money. Even though he's very rich, he doesn't worship money. If I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. So he doesn't worship false idols, the common gods of the day, the sun and the moon. I don't worship them. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me or lifted myself up when evil found him, Indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. So he doesn't seek personal vengeance on people. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat, but no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. So he's been hospitable to people. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of family so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. So the last thing he says in his defense is, I didn't cover my sin like Adam did. I've been open with my sin. So he's saying to all his friends who've been friends, who've been telling him, you must have done this, 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 or else God wouldn't have done this to you. No, that's not true. I've done these things. And I've been honest about my sins and my shortcomings. I didn't cover it up like Adam and blame it on my wife like he did. He, he was honest about his sins. But he interrupts himself right here. There's that little dash. He, he interrupts himself in this big speech he's giving that he could go on and on why his friends are wrong. And his point is clear. He says, I know why God would judge all these sinful things. I know why these things are revolting to him. So I don't do them. Or I do do the good ones. But that's good. Here's, look what he says next when he interrupts himself. Verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. 
The words of Job are ended. So that's his final argument. And look at that. He says, verse 35, 36, 37. If the Almighty would tell him what was wrong and show him if all of his sins were written in a book, Job says, I would carry it on my shoulder. That's a pretty small book. I've been a pretty good guy. I would wear it like a crown. I'm pretty proud of my good life. I would declare to him the number of my steps. I would tell God why I do not deserve this from you. And like a prince, I would approach him. He's starting to get clearer what Job repents of once God shows up. Now, Elihu comes in next and kind of corrects him a little bit. But then God comes in and shows him, yeah, that's not really the right attitude, Job. And yeah, again, I know he's suffering, but we know he repents in the end. So that's an important part of his response. See, what he's done is he so thoroughly justified himself to his friends that he thinks he's justified himself to God. And that he is able to tell God, like, no, I don't deserve this from you. I can tell you what's right and what's wrong. And what, what's really going on here, I mean, if we look at all this put together, his response to his plans failing or not going according to plan is that he's more interested in proving himself right than proving that God is right. And I don't mean that God needs our defense, but in looking for trusting God in this, that he's in front of our problems and seeing how is God still with me? How is God working? And looking for the fact that God is right, rather than being so concerned with myself that I'm right when I'm suffering. And so what do we take from all this? I mean, most I, I think a lot of it speaks for itself, which is why you just kind of read it, but, but what do you take from this? There's no pat answers here when our plans don't go according to plan. But then when that happens, what are you going to do? When that has happened, when it's going to happen again. And I, I know what I do, and I think it's what most people do, is navel gaze. When things don't go according to plan, we, we look down at ourselves. We, we, we bend in on ourselves. We look at ourselves a lot. We get really focused on us and our suffering and, and how hard it is. And, and that's, that's, all right. that's part of grieving. But, but what happens is when something bad happens to me and I, I start navel gazing, I start looking at myself, I don't want to pray, even about the smallest things, really. When a little thing doesn't go according to plan, I don't want to pray. I don't want to look for God in this. I want to kind of put him behind my problems and, and sort of look at him through that rather than going to him. And I look at myself and woe is me, how, how tough it is when it's not even a big problem. So when these big things happen, but that's our temptation. That's what Job is doing. He's not looking at God at all. He's just looking at himself, navel-gazing. But what the Bible says dozens of times about this is this command. This is like the only thing that I'm going to tell because life isn't that simple. God isn't that simple. What the Bible says, though, over and over and over, lift up your eyes. And when navel-gazing, looking downward, looking inward. The Bible tells us over and over and over, lift up your eyes. And I looked it up. How many times it says that? I looked up, look up first. And like, look, look up, or you know, something like that. It hardly ever says to look up. Because looking is easy. It says over and over and over, lift up your eyes. And it's because it means the same thing as in English, that lifting is hard. You lift an object. You lift a burden. So when it says to lift your eyes, that's hard. It's not as simple as looking 
It's lifting your eyes. You have to pull them off of yourself and off of what you see in your situation and lift them to God. That's what the Bible says. And what it says specifically in the New Testament, fix your eyes on Jesus. Lift them and fix them on Jesus. Because that's where the hope is different. That's how we can grieve without hope. Because the reason why, okay, our lives do not go according to plan. That's, that's clear. Nothing has gone according to plan in this world. See, God's plan for all of us, and this is what makes Him so much better than anything else, God's plan is for us to live in fellowship with Him, in community with Him, where everything was very good, where there was no presence of sin, there was no evil, it was people and God dwelling together. We were His people, He was our God, and we were in perfect fellowship. That was His plan. But we ruined God's plan by sinning, by believing the lie that God isn't really good. God doesn't want what's good for us. Now we could say, well, God is God. Why did he make a plan that could be ruined? Well, this is where the whole plan comes in that God made us because he wanted to, not because he needed us. God is completely fulfilled within himself as the triune God. But he made us because of love. And if someone's going to love, they have to have the choice to not love. That's what we did. But see, God's wisdom is this, that we ruined the plan with sin. And that's why all of our little plans comparatively fall through because of sin. Because sin has infected and affected everything in this world. Because of our rebellion against God. And that perfect relationship was now severed. But what God does, and this is what makes Him so good, this is why we have hope. is because He doesn't just say, you know what, work really hard and try to make it up and I'll... Maybe accept you when you stand in front of me. What God's, and it's so much better than these religious little things people say, you know, He has a plan, just trust Him. What God's plan is to fix our plan of ruining His plan is like I said, He leaves heaven. God leaves where He's respected and worshiped and honored and revered in eternity. He leaves it and comes to live in this sinful creation. He becomes fully man and adds that to His full godness jesus and jesus lives where he he is mocked and spit upon and these things job was talking about he lived but he never sinned in return and then jesus on the cross died to pay the price for our sin because the wages of sin is death that's what happened and our death is not good enough because we're not a perfect sacrifice but god is But God cannot die. Man can. That's why Jesus is God and man. And Jesus on the cross puts himself in our place and absorbs God's wrath for our sin. And he dies. But then he comes to life. He rises to show he's victorious over that. Our best laid attempts at destroying his plan didn't succeed. Because death, our greatest enemy, Jesus conquered. Because he rose from death in victory. And then he gives us his righteousness. So not only... Are we forgiven? But we're also perfectly righteous. And so even though we ruined God's plan of having us in fellowship with Him, God fixes that. He fixes what we ruined. Since we ruined His plan, it says in Acts, Peter says that Jesus died according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. This was God's plan to save us, to give us an inheritance, a place where plans don't fall through, where suffering doesn't happen. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have told us. Yeah, it's hard to lift up our eyes. 
But even Job ends up thankful in the end. Because there's worse things than dying. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, the strange thing is, when our lives don't go according to plan, a lot of times we end up being thankful like Job did. At some distant point, it might not even be in this lifetime. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know God, if that relationship is not been restored, I guarantee your life hasn't gone according to your plan. But now you have a chance to be part of God's eternal plan. And the way that happens is you repent and believe. You turn from your sin, you turn to God, recognize that Jesus alone pays the penalty for your sin because you can't do it. And then you follow Him. For those of us who are Christians, it's a hard teaching. I think you should wrestle with it. There's, there's more to it than I can cover in the time I've probably already gone over. And, uh, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Our lives don't go according to plan. But God is present to bless, like Job said. God's light has shone on us, so we have that. I can't give a pat answer, well, here's what you do when your things don't go according to plan. But I can't say to lift up your eyes, fix them on Jesus, and trust that He's good. So let's pray. Well, Father, help us please to trust You and to see You before we see our problems, to lift our eyes to You rather than navel gaze. We need your help for that, God, because in our sinfulness, we don't want to do that. We need your help, God, to, to trust you when our lives don't go according to plan, when we get the phone call we didn't expect, when we hear the news we didn't want to hear, when we see the things we didn't want to see, when we do the things we never planned on doing. Help us, God, to see you in those things and to respond in a way that honors you. Help us to grieve in a way that shows we have hope even though our plans have failed. God, I pray for your blessing and your light to shine on everyone who is suffering, which is probably most people, God. For those who aren't a Christian who don't have hope, I pray that you would turn their hearts towards you right now and they would respond to you in repentance and in thankfulness for the hope you can give through your son, Jesus. And thank you, Jesus, and for what you've done. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship. Or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. And tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship.